Welcome to Murder Bucket. I'm your host, Hannah, and this is the podcast where I dive deep into murders, paranormal activity, abductions, kidnappings, and weird stuff. Let's see what I'm going to pull out of the bucket this week. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for joining me on another beautiful Tuesday. We are currently in a series called The Cold Case Road Trip. If you're new here and you don't know what The Cold Case Road Trip is, I would encourage you to go back to episode 20 where it all started. But I will briefly explain. The Cold Case Road Trip is a series we have been doing that consists of about 30 plus episodes where each week we go over a cold case in two locations. Now tonight is stops 39 and 40, and we are traveling to Kansas and North Dakota. But as always, we have to do our week-slash-weekend recap. Now my previous week wasn't too thrilling, except for on Friday night, my husband and I got to go on a date night, all thanks to our friend Noah, who watched The Tiny Child. We were trying to go eat at a food truck here at a brewery in our area, but a torrential downpour disturbed those plans, so instead we decided to go to this restaurant called The Crab Shack. And I think I might have mentioned it before when my husband's parents were in town. We absolutely love this place. It's got a great atmosphere. You sit at picnic tables inside and outside, And you just kind of hang out and vibe, listen to music, talk, eat really good food. And it is absolutely great. Now, when we were there on Friday, there was a solo guitarist that came in and was playing a ton of music. And he sang as well. And he was actually really good. So after we got our dinner, we went to the movies. Yes, I know. covid And the Delta variant, movies are kind of, ooh, don't do it. You might not want to do it. But we stuck it out and we went to them. So we went to go see the movie called Respect, all about Aretha Franklin's life. And I have to say that Jennifer Hudson did an absolutely incredible job. If you are comfortable going to the movies, I would suggest going to see it. But if you're not comfortable going to the movies and still want to see it, I would highly recommend watching it when it does come out on either digital format or Blu-ray or DVD because it was absolutely incredible. And I'm going to keep saying that because it was. I can tell you I probably cried at least four or five times and probably experienced every single emotion in the book. Now, I'm not going to ruin it for you because you have to go see it. Saturday, we went over to a co-worker's house. Now, she was actually out of town. And the reason we went over there is because she was going to let us borrow her kayaks and paddle boards. So when we got there, one of the kayaks was higher up in her backyard and not closer down to the dock, and there was no way that either one of us could carry it down by ourselves. So we ended up just doing one kayak and one paddleboard. That was a 
adventure trying to get both of those things in the water by ourselves. But once we got going, it was really great, except for the fact that my husband either didn't have his feet wide enough or just doesn't have very good balance. So he couldn't stand on the paddleboard and instead just sat down. But then halfway through, we just decided to switch. So we pulled up into an embankment. Uh, I got out of the kayak and I ended up getting on the paddleboard. But what I didn't realize was I was standing on it backwards. And every time I was paddling, I was just going in a giant circle. Until my husband told me I was on it backwards. I did manage to sit down, turn around, and stand back up without falling off. So that's yay me. And then we kept going. And once my daughter kind of got a little fussy, we decided to turn around and go back. And then she started to cry. So of course, the mommy and me wants to make her happy. So her and daddy were a little further ahead of me. And here am I in this river, creek, whatever you want to call it, screaming at the top of my lungs one of her favorite songs that my mother-in-law actually taught us. It's called Tiny Turtle. If you want to know the Tiny Turtle song, just hit me up on Twitter or Instagram and I'll tell you. I'm not going to sing it for you. And of course, like I said, I sang it at the top of my lungs. Did she stop crying? No. Did it make me feel better? Eh, kind of. That's besides the point. Sunday, we went to church and had like a taco fellowship thing after church, which was really good. And then we had our very last softball game of the season. Unfortunately, we did lose. Not a big deal. We still had fun. Yesterday wasn't that exciting. And now we're here. Let's go ahead and get started with tonight's episode. Stop 39, Kansas. 21-year-old Megan Fogelsong was last seen in Alden, Kansas in late 2015. She was originally from Oneida, Illinois, but had recently moved to Alden. According to several family members, she stopped posting on social media in late November. Her last known contact was to a friend on November 30th on Facebook Messenger, stating that she was with her boyfriend, David. David told police that on December 1st, they got into an argument because he caught her stealing and she left. On December 7th, her phone sent a text message to a friend stating that she was fine. Many people believe that someone else sent that text. Megan met David Madden through her biological mother, Pam Lewis. He was previously romantically involved with Pam. According to the charlieproject.org, David was physically and mentally abusive to the point of kidnapping her, putting her in a straitjacket, holding a gun to her head, and threatening to beat her to death. Their relationship was an on-again, off-again kind of thing, but they kept reconciling. Two of her friends told police that Megan told them if she ever went missing, that David would probably be the one responsible. Several articles stated that a missing persons report wasn't filed until February of 2016, 
due to her lifestyle. Now, after an extensive research into trying to figure out what her lifestyle was, I was unable to come up with an explanation. I would assume that she might be involved with drugs or drinking or possibly just with the wrong crowd. Megan had a prepaid cell phone which did not keep records for longer than 10 days, so the police were unable to use her phone records to help with the investigation. Now let's quickly go back to the mention of David kidnapping Megan just so you can get a clearer picture of who this guy actually was. In December of 2014, Kelly Starnes, a friend of David's, called 911 frantic. He reported that David kidnapped Megan from their home in Barton County, Kansas. Kelly tells the dispatcher that David has threatened to put her in a straitjacket and that he was going to kill her. He also mentioned that he was going to throw her in a closet. He goes on to tell the dispatcher that David was ex-military, hates the government, and hates cops. When police arrived at his home, Megan told him that she was fine and had not been kidnapped. So the investigation ended. After the incident, Megan spent several months with her father and stepmom in Oneida, Illinois. When she returned to Kansas by the next summer, she continued her relationship with David. Dawn, Megan's stepmom, is quoted in an article on APNews.com stating, I kept trying to tell her it's just going to get worse. It's not going to get better. Dawn then stated in an article on WGIL.com that Megan last called her in November and that she had left David and was safe with her friends. Now, when Dawn tried to call the number again, it would go straight to voicemail, and when she would text her, the messages would come back as undeliverable. Several days after telling her stepmom that she had left David, she told a friend through Facebook Messenger that she was back with him. Dawn tells reporter in APNews.com that she started feeling sick about it and knew that something wasn't right. Kelly Starnes began to get extremely worried about Megan when David told him that no one will ever have to worry about her again. There were several searches done in the area where David lived that provided no evidence of her whereabouts. In 2017, David led police on a high-speed chase. He was arrested after a standoff with police. When the Kansas Bureau of Investigations searched his home, they found several homemade explosives. These included two wooden crates full of 24 metal pipe bombs. Some were wrapped with metal bailing wire and some were wrapped with electrical tape. They also found a railroad torpedo, two types of hobby fuses, 12 containers of smokeless powders, and two military ordnance projectiles. He was charged with aggravated assault of a law enforcement officer, multiple counts of eluding a police officer, and several traffic infractions. He spent 91 days in jail until a $30,000 bond was posted on May 23rd of 2017. He was then sentenced to a 24 months probation on August 15th, 2018. David's attorney made a motion on November 12th 
to prohibit the state or any of its witnesses from mentioning that he was a suspect in the disappearance of a person identified as MF. But we all know that was Megan. In January of 2019, he attempted to reclaim the property that was taken during that search. As part of his conviction, he was banned from possessing a gun or explosives for 10 years. His request was denied. On February 12th, a violation report and arrest warrant was issued for him. On April 23rd, 2019, he was indicted by a grand jury on one count of possessing a machine gun. A Rice County undersheriff attempted to take him into custody with a traffic stop about 70 miles northwest of Wichita. That's when he opened fire. The undersheriff was hit four times. David then fled to his home with an unidentified woman and a child in his car. He gathered weapons and went to his father's house. David then shot and killed his 65-year-old father, Thomas. When Sheriff Bryant Evans arrived, he was shot in the leg. After a six-hour standoff, the police stormed the residence and found that David had killed himself. 27-year-old Aaron Baker, who was David's girlfriend at the time of the shooting, was arrested shortly after. She was charged with interference with a law enforcement officer, aggravated child endangerment, and obstruction of apprehension. She was accused of putting her child in danger by being in a relationship with David. After his death, his property had been searched many times, especially an area along the Arkansas River. David buried his dog Rommel there, and before and after his death, it had been dug up at least twice. The reason for digging up the dog's grave is that many people believe he killed Megan, fed her body to his dog, and then killed the dog. He also allegedly buried guns along the river that were stolen from the U.S. Marine Corps base Camp Lejeune in North Carolina. Former Sheriff Steve Bundy told the Wichita Eagle that the guns were recovered along the river near the family's property. They found an AR-15, a 9mm handgun, a 12-gauge shotgun, and several accessories. David's sister Julie said in an article on Kansas.com, We are willing to cooperate with the Kansas Bureau of Investigation and Megan's family in any way possible. I have been in contact with Dawn and told her she is always welcome to contact us and we would help them search the area anytime they wanted. Former Rice County Undersheriff Brian Trester said in an interview during a vigil that was honoring her birthday, It's difficult not to be able to tell them anything of what's going on or where she's at or give them the closure that they would like to have. The vigil in Illinois drew a very large crowd, while the one in Kansas only had three people in attendance. Aaron Bagby, Brian, and Ashley Duft were the ones who helped organize it. Ashley is quoted on CBS19news.com. I can't imagine what her family is going through and what they were thinking at that moment. And just because so much time has gone by not having any closure, it's still just very devastating. 
Aaron goes on to say in the same article, somebody knows something and I pray that at some point they find it in them to come around with any kind of knowledge that would help ease the family's heartbreak. Aaron started to get to know Megan just a few months before her disappearance. He described her as being full of life, energetic, and pretty happy-go-lucky. Megan was born in liberal Kansas and moved to Illinois as a child. She graduated from ROWVA High School in 2012 and moved back to Kansas to be closer to her biological mother. On her Facebook, you can see that she was an avid softball player. There is no information regarding what Megan was last seen wearing at the time of her disappearance. She was roughly 5'5 and weighed between 140 and 170 pounds. If you know anything regarding Megan's disappearance, please either contact the Knox County Sheriff's Department or the Kansas Bureau of Investigations. Let's take a quick break and listen to a word from our sponsor. Thank you to Unidragon for sponsoring tonight's episode. Everyone has faced the same problem, finding the perfect gift to give a friend, your husband, your nephew, or even yourself. There are so many things to choose from, but I have the solution. It's called Unidragon, expertly crafted wooden puzzles. Here's why so many people love Unidragon puzzles. Every puzzle piece has its own unique shape. They have an incredibly colorful design. Each puzzle is packed in a premium wooden gift box. Every month, Unidragon releases new puzzles, and they are interesting for adults and children. Now, I recently got the Charming Owl puzzle. I knew it was going to come in a wooden box, but I didn't expect for it to be so pretty. This puzzle is a work of art, and when I finish with it, I might frame it. Now, Unidragon has a special offer for all Murder Bucket listeners. If you go to unidragon.com and enter the promo code BUCKET, you'll receive 10% off your order. That's BUCKET, B-U-C-K-E-T, for 10% off. Thank you for sticking with us with the second half of tonight's episode. Let's continue with Stop 40, North Dakota. Now, North Dakota is a large state, but it does have a very small population of about 760,000 people. This means that there is little to no information regarding cold cases. I will be featuring 16 people who are missing or who were the victim of a homicide with the information that I could find regarding their cases. I would like to apologize in advance if I mispronounce anyone's names. I did try to YouTube and Google every pronunciation, but I will most likely get something wrong. On March 27, 1963, the body of Larry Phoebus, age 14, was found two and a half miles south of Alexander, North Dakota. 
Larry disappeared and was presumed to have been murdered on or about October 20th, 1962. The autopsy result indicated that Larry died as a result of asphyxiation. Please contact the McKenzie County Sheriff's Department if you have any information regarding Larry's death. On December 27, 1968, 38-year-old Donna Michaelinko of rural McLean County was reported missing by her daughter. She was last seen on November 7, 1968. Please contact the McLean County Sheriff's Department if you have any information regarding Donna's disappearance. On April 30, 1972, the body of 14-year-old Laura Dugan was found approximately three miles southwest of Medoro, North Dakota, in a hilly and wooded area approximately one mile south of Interstate 94. Laura was the victim of a homicide sometime between April 7th and April 21st. She died of strangulation. Please contact the Billings County Sheriff's Department if you have any information regarding Laura's death. On June 27, 1974, the body of Daniel Johnson was discovered approximately seven miles north of the Minote Air Force Base near Highway 83. He had been shot three times. Please contact the Renville County Sheriff's Department if you have any information regarding Daniel's death. On August 20, 1978, the body of William Wolfe Jr. was discovered in the Red River, three miles north of Cragness, Minnesota. William's body had been cut in half and placed in garbage bags. He was reported missing during the week of August 13, 1978. Please contact the Fargo Police Department if you have any information regarding William's disappearance. During the evening of April 11, 1981, 15-year-old Barbara Cotton disappeared in Williston, North Dakota. Please contact the Williston Police Department if you have any information regarding Barbara's disappearance. October 1, 1981, the body of 69-year-old Clifton Marsh was discovered in a rest area located along Highway 2, seven miles east of Devil's Lake, North Dakota. The investigation disclosed that Clifton had been shot. He left his home in Hope, Michigan on September 29, 1981, on his way to British Columbia, Canada for a fishing trip. Please contact the Ramsey County Sheriff's Department if you have any information regarding Clifton's death. On September 16, 1991, the decomposing body of Joseph Anderson was found in the trunk of his 1979 Buick Riviera. It was parked on the north side of Gladestone Inn in Jamestown, North Dakota. Joseph's body was clad only in a pair of white jockey underwear and was covered in a green sheet. Please contact the Jamestown Police Department if you have any information regarding Joseph's death. On August 26, 1993, 30-year-old Kristen Deed was reported missing. 
Kristen was with her boyfriend, 32-year-old Robert Anderson at the time. Kristen and Robert took Kristen's two children to visit relatives in Wyshek, North Dakota. They were last seen on August 15, 1993. On August 20th, a Dodge van thought to be driven by both of them was found abandoned in Aberdeen, South Dakota. It's believed that they were the victims of a homicide. Please contact the Logan County Sheriff's Department if you have any information regarding Kristen and Robert's disappearance. November 6, 1994, the body of Ronald Johnson was found frozen in a water-filled ditch five miles northwest of Dunseith, North Dakota. The autopsy results indicated that Ronald possibly died as a result of hyperthermia. However, information was received that he had been assaulted before being placed in the ditch. Please contact the Rolette County Sheriff's Department if you have any information regarding Ronald's death. Shortly after noon on August 2, 1994, Michelle Jolson dropped her son off at the grandfather's residence in Bismarck, North Dakota, while she went to pick up her check and run a few errands. Michelle never returned. She was last seen at the Wee Fest in Minnesota by a friend on August 5th. Michelle was reportedly in the company of a man named Tom who drove a black Chevrolet 4x4. Please contact the Bismarck Police Department if you have any information regarding Michelle's disappearance. 75-year-old Tal Patton was last seen on August 15, 1995 in Alexander, North Dakota. Tal had planned to travel to Georgia. However, his packed suitcase and map depicting the travel route he planned to take were found inside his home along with other personal items and medication. Tao's vehicle, a brown, half-ton, two-wheel-drive Dodge pickup with a white topper, was missing. Please contact the McKenzie County Sheriff's Department if you have any information regarding Tao's disappearance. On November 16, 1996, at around 8 p.m., Sandra Jacobson and her five-year-old son, John, left a relative's home in Bismarck, North Dakota to get gas for her vehicle. They were never seen again. The next day, Sandra's 1990 gray Honda Civic was located at the Centennial Beach in Bismarck. Please contact the Bismarck Police Department if you have any information regarding Sandra and John's disappearance. On November 5th, 2002, the decomposing body of 20-year-old Russell Turcott of Wolf Point, Montana, was discovered 10 miles west of Devil's Lake, North Dakota. Russell was last seen at the Simpsons gas station in Grand Forks on July 12th. He was waiting for a money order to travel home to Montana. He never picked up the money order. Please contact the Ramsey County Sheriff's Department with any information regarding Russell's disappearance. And finally, on June 4, 2007, the body of 18-year-old Anita Nutson was found in her apartment in the 2400 block of 4th Street in Minot, North Dakota. 
Anita had been killed while laying in her bed, and she died as a result of knife wounds to her upper body. Unknown suspect or suspects appear to have entered the apartment through a ground floor window and exited by the same route. The murder weapon was found at the scene. Please contact the Minot Police Department if you have any information regarding Anita's death. Thank you for tuning in to tonight's episode. Before you go, check out this promo from my friend at a Crime Most Queer podcast. Hey folks, I'm NJ, the host of A Crime Most Queer. Join me every Thursday when I unpack true crime affecting the South African LGBTQ community. Each week, I take an in-depth look at some well-known and not-so-well-known cases, where we will explore the people involved, the circumstances that led up to the crime being committed, the police investigation, and the eventual trial, if there was one. I also look at some of the conspiracy theories that sprang up around the case and try to figure out if they actually hold water. A Crime Most Queer is available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for sticking around to the end. I hope you have enjoyed tonight's episode. Be sure to check us out on Instagram at Murdbucket, Twitter at The Murder Bucket, and Facebook at Bucket Murd. Check out weekly posts regarding new episodes and chime in on the weekend slash week recaps. I would love to get to know you better. Have a great day.